Almighty God, we are grateful to you for your scriptures, and we pray this morning that uh, the Gospel of John would speak to us, and that you would open your truth and reveal yourself to us through the words of that Gospel. We pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that we might see and hear the things that you would have us know. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When things go wrong, we love to assign blame. When something goes wrong, when a plane crashes or when an election is lost, when a business fails, when a terrorist strikes, when the economy tanks, when a child dies, we go looking for culprits. We want to assign blame. We hunt for those who are responsible. And we do this for two reasons. First, we want to believe that the physical world is orderly. We want to believe that there is a reliable connection between cause and effect. A connection that we can figure out. We want to understand that orderly connection so that we can change things in the future. In 1986, the space shuttle Challenger exploded... 73 seconds after liftoff, all of the crew were killed. In addition to six NASA astronauts, there was also a high school teacher from New Hampshire aboard. Krista McCulloch was her name. She was the first person chosen in the NASA's uh, teacher in space program. And because she was aboard the shuttle, school children from around the country were watching live as the shuttle exploded 48,000 feet in the air. Following that disaster, President Reagan appointed a commission, the Rogers Commission, to investigate the cause of the accident. You right you might remember physicist Richard Feynman giving televised testimony where he took one of the rubber o-rings used in making a space shuttle and he put it into a, a glass of ice water and then he pulled it out and demonstrated that once that the o-ring was cold it lost its flexibility and was prone to failure it was an o-ring made stiff by low temperatures on the launch day that caused the disaster. At least that was the physical cause of the disaster. Richard Feynman, in his report, went on to talk about the moral failings of NASA. Very interesting to hear a physicist talk not only about physical causality, but also moral causality. One reason we assign blame, one reason we look for physical causes of bad events is to gain control over our world to make our lives safer, healthier, and more comfortable. And a second reason we assign blame is because we want to believe that the moral world is also orderly. We want to believe that good is rewarded and that evil is punished. We want to believe that culprits are held accountable and benefactors are blessed. Now, it is pretty clear that the moral, that the physical world is morally indifferent. The physical world does not care about good or evil, about righteousness or sin. A tornado doesn't care whose house it destroys. A virus is indifferent to which person it kills. A speeding bullet doesn't care if its target is a saint or a sinner. 
If there is to be a moral order to the world, if there is some kind of connection between good and reward and evil and punishment, it must be found outside of the physical world. Now, I hate to do it, but I'm going to offer a little philosophical sidebar here, a little digression from the sermon, because I think it will help us get a better handle on one of the questions that's raised by our reading from the Gospel of John this morning. There is a branch of philosophy called ontology. Please say that with me, ontology. Ontology is concerned with questions about being and the kinds of beings that there are. Through the centuries, there have been many different theories of ontology, but they mostly fall into two basic categories, materialism and idealism. And then between those two, there's something called dualism, which tries to combine the two. Materialist ontology says everything is ultimately made up of matter. If you want to understand the world, if you want to know how things work, you look at matter. You study atoms and you study energy. The natural sciences, physics, biology, astronomy are all materialist in their outlook. Idealist ontology says that everything ultimately is made up of spirit. If you want to understand the world, if you want to know how things work, you look at spirit. You study God. You study the human spirit. Generally speaking, ethics, aesthetics, and theology are idealist in their outlook. There have been some dualist ontologies through the centuries, philosophies that try to hold together the materialist and the idealist points of view. But most philosophers are committed either to materialism or to idealism. Now, here's the challenge. Every philosophy is an attempt to describe the world consistently, coherently, and exhaustively. Every philosophy is an attempt to explain all of our experiences using a single comprehensive theory. That's a lot of stuff to explain. A comprehensive theory would need to explain why water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Why planets move in ellipses. Why the crystal structure of salt is cubic. Certainly, the materialist philosophy does very well with those kinds of questions. But a comprehensive theory would also need to explain why educating children is a moral duty of every parent. Why torture is always wrong. Why the Mona Lisa is a beautiful painting. And why there is a universe at all instead of just nothing. As it turns out, materialist philosophy does a really lousy job with those kinds of questions. And it also turns out it is precisely those kinds of questions that people are most interested in and argue most vigorously about. No one has ever unfriended someone on Facebook because they said water freezes at 35 degrees or that salt forms hexagonal crystals. But plenty of people get bent out of shape if you suggest that healthcare death panels are a good idea or that Jackson Pollock is a better painter than Edward Hopper. The questions that really rile us up 
The questions that we think are worth fighting about are not the questions covered by traditional materialist philosophy, but rather are the very problems that idealist philosophy focuses on. All right, that's the end of the philosophical sidebar. Back to the main track. In our reading about the healing of the blind man, there are both physical and moral questions. There are both materialist and idealist questions involved. The physical questions include, did this man suffer from some kind of genetic mutation? Did he have a birth defect? Did he suffer uh, fetal malnutrition? Was there an infection or an injury? Regarding the healing, we could ask, well, how did Jesus do it? And what role did the mud play? And how did it work? But the disciples, when they see this man, don't ask the physical questions. They ask the moral question. Who sinned that this man should be blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? The disciples want to assign blame. They want to identify the moral cause of this man's blindness. They're trying to make moral sense of their world. They are doing what all people do instinctively, people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God. People want to believe that the world makes sense morally, that people want to believe that people get what they deserve. And so the natural question is, Has this man been afflicted with blindness because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents? There is biblical support for this idea that sin is the cause of suffering. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, after the law of Moses has been presented to the people of God, uh, to the, uh, the people of Israel, God says to them, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Follow God's law, receive a blessing. Disregard God's law, face God's curse. That viewpoint that there is a moral order to the world Because it is governed by a moral God, that viewpoint is baked into the law of Moses. And we see that viewpoint expressed by the friends of Job. You all remember the story of Job. Job was a righteous man. The Bible calls him, quote, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But in spite of Job's righteousness, Job was absolutely blasted with misfortune. His entire family is killed. All of his property is destroyed. His entire body is covered with painful sores. This guy is totally miserable. And so Job's friends come to him to commiserate and to console. They say to him, gosh, Job... You must have done something really bad if God allows you to suffer like this. Say, why don't you confess your sin and maybe God will have mercy on you. The friends of Job believe that the world has a moral order. If you sin, you suffer. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. That's the idea. The Bible also has the idea that the sins of one person can produce 
affliction, not only in them, but also in their children. In Numbers 14, 18, we read, quote, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation. So the disciples are trying to make sense of the moral order of the world. And they are asking biblical questions. Is this man suffering from blindness because he sinned? Or is he suffering from blindness because his parents sinned? And Jesus says, neither. This man isn't blind because he sinned. This man isn't blind because his parents sinned. In fact, something else is going on. Something bigger. Jesus says that this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We need to be very careful about assigning moral blame. What comes to the disciples' minds when they see the suffering man is, whose fault is it? And don't we do the same thing? When we see a street person asking for money, don't we think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder what they did to get into that condition. Sometimes we're just trying to convince ourselves that they are not worthy of our charity, that they've simply gotten what they deserve. If someone suffering is the result of their sin, then we somehow feel ourselves relieved of the moral responsibility to help them. When we see children who are out of control or psychologically maladjusted. Don't we think to ourselves, hmm, I wonder what their parents did to mess them up. Just because someone is suffering from a self-inflicted wound doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them. Jesus commands us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit those who are in prison, to bind up the brokenhearted. He does not tell us to check their references or to have them fill out a questionnaire about how they got where they are. If people need help, just help them. End of the story. So what should we do when we suffer? If with others we just help and don't inquire about the reasons, what should we do about ourselves? As we naturally look to assign blame or moral causality when people suffer, we also do that with ourselves. Times when we suffer, we ask ourselves, why me? Let me suggest four reasons why we suffer. And I'm not going to say that this list is exhaustive, but... At least four. Number one, we suffer because we sin. Number two, we suffer because creation is fallen. Number three, we suffer because God is training us in patience. And number four, we suffer to reveal the works of God. Let me walk through those one at a time. We suffer because we sin. Let's be honest. Sometimes when we suffer, we suffer because of our own actions. If I'm drunk and I fall off my bar stool and bust open my head... There's no one to blame but myself. Sin has natural consequences. Lying, stealing, cheating, anger, drunkenness, adultery, laziness, pride, envy, 
All of these bring with them certain negative consequences, and the less often we do those kinds of things, the easier life tends to be. So, when we are suffering, it's not crazy to ask ourselves, is this the consequence of something that I'm doing? Is there something that I need to be doing differently? Number two, we suffer because creation is fallen. Not all of our suffering is the result of our sin. Sometimes we suffer because the whole creation has fallen. Diseases, natural disasters, wild animals, mean people, these are all part of a fallen creation. Cornelius Plantinga, the president of Calvin Theological Seminary, is quoted as answering the question of why there is suffering in the world uh, if there is a good God with this simple phrase. Things are not as they are supposed to be. Things are not as they're supposed to be. God had a different plan for this world. We got it off the rails and did a bunch of damage. And that damage sometimes causes us to suffer. Sometimes you and I suffer because creation has fallen. Number three, we suffer because God is training us in patience. Sometimes God allows us to suffer because he knows that a little suffering will produce a result worth the trouble. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces uh, character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. People in the education business talk about grit, which is the ability to push through trouble, to not give up the first time something goes wrong. Success as a student and success in life in general largely depends on grit. But we don't get grit unless we suffer. And sometimes God lets us suffer for our own good. And fourth, sometimes we suffer to reveal the works of God. Sometimes God permits suffering because God is doing something really big. That's what happens in our story this morning. A man has been blind since birth and Jesus tells us that he is born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus meets this man. Jesus heals this man. This public healing causes a stir in Palestine at the time. And we're still talking about it now, 2,000 years later. Those events were arranged providentially by God to draw our attention to Jesus. And having our eyes focused on Jesus is worth the price. It's worth any price. One of the hard things Jesus says is that it is more important than to know Jesus than even our families. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think of that for a second. 
Jesus is saying that it is more important to know Him than to know your own mother. Now, I'm not going to preach that text on Mother's Day. But it's the truth. It's better to lose your mother. It's better to lose your child than to lose Jesus. It is the incomparable worth, the incomparable value of God as revealed in Jesus Christ that makes even the lifelong suffering of a blind man worthwhile. Think for a moment of poor Job. He had troubles beyond compare. And then his so-called friends who tried to comfort him blame the troubles on him. Job doesn't know why these bad things are happening to him, but his conscience is clear, and he's sure that it's not because he's offended God in any special way. After listening to the consolations and comforts of his friends, all of which accuse Job of some unknown, unconfessed sin, Job praises God. And he begins to list all of the wonders of God that he knows about. His creation, his boundless power, his eternity, his goodness, his justness, his mercy, his wisdom, his holiness. And then Job says something that strikes me to the heart. He says, behold, these are but the outskirts of the way of God's ways and how small A whisper do we hear of Him. What we know about God is massive. It's flabbergasting. Physicists study to know the deep mysteries of creation. Theologians study to know the deep mysteries of revelation. But no scientist or no sage comes near to plumbing the depths of God. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. We've barely scratched the surface. How small a whisper do we hear of him? It is a wonder of wonder that God loves us and wants to talk to us, but what we get is the merest whisper of what God has to say. God is deep. God is mysterious. God is beautiful. God is great. God is holy. God is merciful. God is wise. God is in control. God is without bounds. And when Christ heals this blind man, a man blind from birth in the providence of God, God shows us just a little more of himself. God gives us a bigger hint of who he is. God lets us peek for a flash into the depths of his nature. And let me say this to you. One tiny flash, one moment of insight into the holiness of God is worth more than all of the troubles of this life. Some of you in this room have been through some terrible, difficult things in your lives. Some of you are in the midst of terrible and difficult things Right now, and I grieve for you, and I grieve with you in your suffering. But I also stand four square and fully confident that nothing in this life, broken and twisted by sin, can throw us, will ever outweigh the wonder and the glory of getting even a glimpse of Jesus. Some of you have had the experience and you've testified to the truth of what I'm saying. You've had that moment of insight, that moment of communion, and all of your chaos and suffering instantly resolve into an ordered beauty. You've told me about these things. 
These momentary insights have become touchstones and milestones and cornerstones of your life. Things you remind yourself of when you feel frayed and harried by life's troubles. Things that you remind yourself of when you're wondering what is the way forward. Things you remind yourself of in moments of quiet, grateful, thankful worship. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for making yourself known to me. Thank you for pulling me up out of a slimy pit and putting my feet on solid ground. Thank you for your beauty and your grace and your majesty and your holiness. Thank you for letting me see it for just that moment. If the suffering of your life remains unresolved, chaotic, purposeless. My counsel to you is to find yourself in Jesus and to look for the work that God is doing. There was a very famous 19th century fool who said that religion is the opiate of the masses. He thought that politics and social action was the solution to human suffering. Now, I admire Karl Marx for his desire to alleviate human suffering. That is an admirable moral trait. But what a total fool he was. To think that there's comfort outside of God. To think that we can bootstrap ourselves into paradise. And how many millions and millions of people suffered under his benighted philosophy in the 20th century. Outside of God, the troubles of this life make no sense. The suffering of this life is just ugly and exasperating. But when we are united with Christ, when we find ourselves in Him, our suffering and the suffering of the world resolves into an image of redemption. Sin produces suffering. Sometimes it's our sin. Sometimes it's the sin of other people. But Christ, the Creator of the universe self-sacrificing lover of humanity, very logos of God. Christ overcomes sin and chaos and death. In Christ, brokenness and despair give way to wholeness and hope. If you have ever seen what I have seen, if you have had the experience of union with Christ, you know what I mean. And if you have not had that experience yet, if my words seem like pipe dreams to you, let me be straight with you. There is no proof that I can give you, so don't come asking. I can no more prove the sweetness of Christ than I can prove the deliciousness of chocolate to someone who refuses to taste it. All I can do is to invite you to taste and see That the Lord is good. King David, a man who knew intense suffering and who knew surpassing glory, a man who had been in the pit and a man who had been at the mountaintop, King David speaks from personal experience, Karl Marx be damned, in Psalm 34 when he writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and hunger, 
But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's God's honest truth, and that's the Word of God for us today. Let me close this morning with the Gospel. Jesus met a man who was blind since birth. And He gave eyes to that man to see. That same Jesus is God in the flesh. And He later went to die on a cross for the payment of human sin. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are made right with God, put into communion and fellowship with the Creator of the universe, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ that the suffering and the chaos and the disorder of this world resolve into purpose and into meaning. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses of sin and were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. By faith in Christ, we can be raised from death. By faith in Christ, we can be freed from sin. By faith in Christ, we can be given new eyes to see. By faith in Christ, we can be shown the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. By faith in Christ, our eyes are opened, our suffering is redeemed, and we can know peace in this life and in the life to come. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the mercy of bringing us here this day. Lord, we pray that um, we would hear your voice and see your truth. Lord, I pray that you would um, move our spirits in a way that Um, our flesh can't do. Lord, I pray that we might find our satisfaction in You. I pray that as we focus upon You, Lord, that all of the rest of the things of our lives would come into focus and resolve. That they'd make sense. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in our suffering. And I pray that you would use us to meet others in their suffering. And I pray above all else that you would bring honor and glory to yourself. Because you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.